0: KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.
1: Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie Podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Today, we're going to talk about all things noir, and here's a little something to put you in the mood.
2: It was a hot afternoon, and I can still remember the smell of honeysuckle all along that street. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I think I'm in a frame don't sound like you. I don't know. All I can see is the frame. I'm going in there now and look at the picture. A black pool opened up at my feet. I dived in. It had no bottom. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. I thought detectives were heavy drinkers. No. Well, some of them are. Some of them just encourage other people to drink. You should tell me what's was engraved on that anklet. Is my name. As for instance? Phyllis. Stalling, honey? What do I call you besides stupid? (laughs) Stupid will do if you don't bruise easily. Otherwise, you might try Danny. Can't you even feel sorry for me? I'm not going to try. Jeff. Well, just get out, will you?
0: I have to sleep in this room.
2: Don't ever change, Tiger. I don't think I'd like you with a heart. Keep asking for it and you're gonna get it. I told you to shove off. Shove off. People lose teeth talking like that. If you want to hang around, you'll be polite. That evens us. Now fold your hands or I'll fold them for you. You talk big, mister. I tell you right out, I'm a man who likes talking to a man who likes to talk. Well, will we talk about the (laughs) blackbird? You just sit and stay inside yourself. You wait for me to talk. I like that i never found out much listening to myself. I'm afraid I don't like your manner. Now, I've had complaints about it, but it keeps getting worse. I don't mind if you don't like my manners. I don't like them myself. They're pretty bad. I grieve over them long winter evenings. And I don't mind you ritzing me or drinking your lunch out of a bottle. But don't waste your time trying to cross-examine me. Hold tight to that cheap cigar of yours, Keys. I killed Dietrichsen. Yes, I killed him. I killed him for money.
1: And for a woman. And I didn't get the money, and did get the woman. Since I'm co-presenting a year of noir in San Diego at the Digital Gym Cinema called Noir on the Boulevard, I wanted to devote an entire podcast to film noir. And there's no better person on earth to speak to than Eddie Muller. So I'm thrilled to have as my guest a man who's known as the czar of Noir, He's also the host of TCM's Noir Alley, author of numerous books, including Gun Crazy, The Origin of Outlaw Cinema, founder and president of the Noir Foundation, and he oversees and hosts Noir City, which is enjoying its 16th year and will kick off on January 26th. So welcome, Eddie.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Beth. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm a little jealous. Noir on the Boulevard... I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty Tony. I mean, we're just Noir Alley at TCM. <laughs> you know, you, you got the whole boulevard. That's pretty good.
1: Well, our cinema is located on El Cajon Boulevard, and they brand it as the boulevard, so it was kind of a, an easy one to pick for a title. <laughs> very,
0: very very good. Very good. And I want to stress in your—thank I thank you for that lovely introduction. And uh, the Noir City Festival that you refer to is taking place in San Francisco, just to, to be clear about that.
1: Yes, and we're going to talk about your film festival in a little more detail coming up. But first, I wanted to start with a clip from Gun Crazy, because Peggy Cummins, the star of that film, just passed away.
2: When are you going to begin to live? Four years in reform school, then the army? I just think they'd owe you something for a change. What's the got you being so particular? Look, let's not argue. I'll... I'll hock my guns and give us enough dough to make another start. There isn't enough money in those guns for the kind of start I want. But I want things, a lot of things, big things. I don't want to be afraid of life or anything else. I want a guy with spirit and guts. A guy who can laugh at anything, who'll do anything. A guy who can kick over the traces and win the world for me. Look, I don't want to look in that mirror and see nothing but a a stick-up
0: man staring back at me.
2: You better kiss me goodbye, Bot. Because I won't be here when you get back. Come on, Bart. Let's finish it the way we started it, on the level.
1: You knew her well. You wrote a book about the impact of the film that she so memorably starred in. What was her impact on Noir, and what's kind of her legacy?
0: Well, it's probably one of the great performances in all of, Film noir, certainly when it comes to female roles, I'd say, I mean, I've described that character and, and Peggy's performance as the most ferocious femme fatale in film noir, and uh, I, I think that, that pretty much sums it up, and it, it is uh, sad. This is actually the first time I've talked publicly about it since Peggy passed away, and I had just seen her in November, my wife and I took a, a trip to London, and um uh, we, we visited with Peggy, and she was in great, great spirits. And we were making plans to um, to do more of our travel to various festivals around the world, you know, introducing a new generation of of people to this film. And uh, and, and Peggy was always a, such an important part of that show, you know. It's uh, so that is her cinema legacy, really. And and she's not alone in being one of those actresses that sort of the legacy will will all revolve around this one movie. I mean, she made a lot of other really good films, but it's it's this one that stands out. Uh but for me personally, it, it was just getting to know her as a very special person uh who was so not a star and was so down to earth and uh you know, when we went when we go to London, we'd stay in her flat and she'd cook for us and she was just a charming uh, woman who taught me more about just uh, dignity and how to go through life and how to age gracefully, uh, lessons that the movies don't necessarily teach you. But I felt very, very fortunate to uh, to know her.
1: You mentioned the word ferocious in defining her performance, which I think is really accurate. What was it about her that kind of made her just leap off the screen in that role?
0: I think she just gave it her all, really. I mean, she was so not that person. The character as written was described as a delicate prairie flower. That was that was written in every iteration <laughs> of the script. There was that term. The whole crux of it was that there was this tiny little woman who loved her sidearms and wasn't afraid to... You know, she wanted action. And uh, I think a big part of, of why she was able to give so much is that she had left Hollywood. I mean, this really was the last film she made in, in America. She'd, she'd come to America. She was going to be groomed by Daryl Zanuck at 20th Century Fox to be the star of this big, uh, colossal production, Forever Amber. They started making the movie, and then he pulled the rug out from under her and said there are various stories about why she was removed from the production. Either she was too young to be doing the thing she was doing on screen, which would get the film in trouble with the Legion of Decency, or she just wasn't sexy enough, in Xanax's opinion. And so she had left and gone back to England. At the last minute, the King brothers, who produced Gun Crazy, said, yeah, Peggy Cummins, we'll get her to play the part, because they didn't have an actress for this, this role. Knowing that this was it, that she was going back to England and she was going to get married and she wasn't sure that she was going to continue acting, I think she just turned it all loose in this performance. There was, there was nothing, you know, there was no going back. It's like, I'm giving it everything.
1: Well, I want to backtrack a little bit to talk about noir in a kind of broader terms, just in case there are any people out there who are not familiar with it or want to learn a little bit more about it. But for you, kind of what are the elements that really define noir? What are the things that a film really needs to have to be classified as noir?
0: Huh. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. And it's a, a lot of people approach it that way. Like, you know, uh, stylistically there has to be, you know, it takes place at night. There's rainy streets. Guys have to be wearing hats. There, you know, uh, there's got to be a femme fatale lurking around somewhere. You know, that to me that's all window dressing. The real essence of, of it is that film noir was an artistic movement in Hollywood, and a lot of it had to do with the business having gone through the Depression and then immediately World War II, and the movies had to do their part. They had to, to be uplifting and have uh, a moral to the story that was good for the public. And in reality, there were all of these artists who, who wanted to write more realistic stories who were sort of kept from doing that in the movie business, during the 30s and 40s, I'm going to say like 1934 to 1944. That was, that was the movie business, right? And I think that film noir was really born of the artists themselves saying, well, now can we finally present an alternative to happily ever after? And, and the place they were able to do that most comfortably and conveniently was in crime films because there were genre pictures they weren't all B movies but the the moral watchdogs in Hollywood didn't pay as much attention to genre pictures as they did to the big A movies that that had the higher budgets and got all the attention and the awards and all that stuff so so this whole movement of films began that reflected this alternative view of reality, if you will, a much darker, more cynical, more menacing view of the world. And it was reflected in the scripts, the direction, the cinematography, the acting. Big stars would say, well, I want to play the bad guy for a change. It changed careers. It changed the look of films. It ate away at the production code so that uh, movies sort of grew up. Like, you know, it's not going to always end well. So that's really what the significance of film noir and the importance of film noir. And I really believe that these films stay relevant today because uh you know, much more jaundiced cynical audience today in many respects can look back at these films and say uh you know, they don't see them as being nostalgic or something like you you can see the underpinnings of of our modern world in these films.
1: You talk about window dressing separate from kind of what defines it for you, but I think that what you're addressing is this kind of, this notion of the tone and this, the themes, and those are the things that I think really do define noir. I mean, to me, it's kind of like that gray area. It's always about... You know things that are not clear cut. There's you know, there's so much of this gray area in those films and moral ambiguity, and mm-hmm. and um, that's what I found so fascinating about them. So and and also the other thing about that, I was looking at your list of films that you've got coming up for Noir City, and I think I'm not sure if there's any other genre, maybe horror, but that has just the titles alone are just so wonderful. I mean, you've got I Wake Up Screaming, Among the Living, This Gun for Hire, Quiet, That's two movies.
0: That's two movies, by the way. <laughs> I Wake Up Screaming yes. and Among the Living, not I Wake Up Screaming yes. Among the Living.
1: <laughs> Although that would be an interesting one.
0: Well, some, sometimes I pair movies as a double bill <laughs> just to see them on the marquee. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the titles are great, and they seem to, whether or not they tie directly into what the plot or the story is about, the, hearing these titles, and if you look at some <laughs> of the posters, reading some of the taglines, it's absolutely irresistible. I mean, <laughs> how can you not want to see these films?
0: Well, uh, yeah, you you totally get it, Beth. I mean, uh, they they knew what they were doing, and, and you know, uh, honestly, that is... A major part of the appeal is that style it it just draws people you know there are so many artists today uh visual artists, musicians, that are all drawn to noir for those very reasons the The fabulous language uh in these movies, the slang all of this stuff has has never lost its appeal it just it refuses to go out of style, you know. Yeah, you, you hit it right on the head.
1: Now, a lot of noir is very rooted, or noir itself is kind of very rooted in, in literature. There's this whole kind of hard-boiled crime fiction where a lot of these films kind of have their roots. How did that impact it?
0: Well, it's good of you to recognize that because I really do believe that the movement itself really kind of happened in the late 20s and the 1930s but when, the, when Hollywood asserted the production code in 1934, it was, it was always there, but they didn't really enforce it until 1934. And they said, well, we're, never gonna, we're not going to show these things on the screen. It kept a lot of the literary works that were the underpinnings of noir uh, from reaching the screen. I mean, a classic case in point would be um, The Postman Always Rings Twice, which James M. Kane wrote in 1934, and MGM bought the book in 1935, but it took them 11 years to, to get it onto the screen because it was just too, too tough. It was too tough and too sexy and too raw, and it's like, we can't make a movie out of that. But there are a lot of books like that, and so um, these writers who were, the writers who were extremely influential in the 30s, the, the Dashiell Hammetts and the James M. Canes and the Edward Andersons and Horace McCoys and these people, they had done their work in advance of the movement happening in Hollywood. And then when they sort of cross-pollinated with this visual style that developed thanks to a lot of expat European directors who came to this country who sort of had the the perfect visual corollary for what these guys were putting on the page... It was it was pretty. That that was what fomented this uh, this movement.
1: And then you even had writers like Raymond Chandler writing screenplays as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Blue Dahlia—that was his original screenplay. I don't I don't know if Chandler was a particularly great screenwriter, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I've read his original screenplay for The Lady in the Lake, and it's it's bizarre. It's like, wow, this guy is just refusing to write. A screenplay. He's like spending eight pages on a conversation with the secretary and then he gets to the point of the scene in page nine. <laughs> I'm sure the the check was for the same amount of money, but wow, he was he was wasting a lot of time.
1: One of the things we're doing with our film series is we're focusing on films that do specifically have literary roots, films that were adapted from books, and two of them were by women, which uh, is not that common, but there were some women noir writers.
0: More more common than you would think, yes. and uh, I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. If you... If you take a really close look at the lineup of films that I'm presenting um, at the Noir City Festival in San Francisco, there are a lot of women involved in the creation of these movies, either as the writers of the source novels, as writers of the screenplay, uh, writers of the stories upon which the films are based. It might be a magazine series or something. Yeah, it's something that I've really taken a very keen interest in Lately, because I've sort of discovered that over the years, film, and I'm going to put this in quotes, scholarship, has been entirely driven by men. And, and so the idea of what is film noir, that's all been set up and decided by men. And it always amazed me, as I watched more and more of these films, that there were certain movies that were left out of the discussion. Basically, anything starring Barbara Stanwyck or Joan Crawford was just not discussed as film noir. Maybe Mildred Pierce would sneak in. But it was almost as if these guys were saying, well, if a woman is the lead, it's not really noir. Because we know that film noir is about men being destroyed by evil women. That's that's the point of it, right? And I could not disagree more. Um, so... Yes, all of those fabulous Stanwyck movies—you uh, know, No Man of Her Own, uh, Sorry, Wrong Number, The File on Thelma Jordan, those Crawford pictures like Mildred Pierce and Sudden Fear and Flamingo Road and The Damn Don't Cry and all—and uh, and lots of others. Picture that I restored called Woman on the Run with Ann Sheridan in the lead. You know, that's a terrific film that was very overlooked. And, yeah, I think women played a much bigger role in this than, than people realize. In, in the industry in general, they, they played a huge role, but they weren't really allowed to have the, the glory positions that allowed historians to, to focus on them, right? And um, I've, I've tried to kind of balance it where it makes sense, uh, like through the work of this woman, Joan Harrison, who was Alfred Hitchcock's protege, and became a writer and producer uh, on her own and made some terrific noir films in the 1940s and then ended up producing Alfred Hitchcock's television show. So, I mean, that's somebody who had a a major role to play in in this whole crime and suspense genre, and nobody really knows about Joan Harrison at all. Hmm.
1: Well, I have to say that it's the women in noir that pulled me in because I grew up in the 60s and I remember being so frustrated with like these Doris Day films and stuff that I was being told was like, oh, you know, this is what f- female role models should be like, and I'm like, they they were so repulsive to me, and I was. I, that's
0: that's strong. Don't say that about oh, Doris Day. I I'm love Doris. Sorry, Day.
1: I know, but it was tough <laughs> as a kid. So to me, it was like I was I loved characters like I loved the Bond films with you know like pussy galore and then noir because. The women noir, I I always got this... People would, you know, push back and say, like, oh, but aren't those films so misogynistic and women look so bad? And I was like, but they're in control sometimes. They may make bad choices and they may meet bad ends and, you know, the films may not hold them up as role models, but these were women who frequently operated like men, who, like, were driving the plot for good or for bad. And I just was riveted by them you know people like barbara Stanwyck and double indemnity and jane greer and out of the past and lana turner and postman always rings twice i mean my dad was a, a movie buff and so he took me to these films when i was like a little kid and those films just i felt like it was such a different view that i was seeing and it was great and it totally sucked me in through those characters
0: yes i i couldn't agree more and they continue to exert that that thrall over audiences today. I mean, my audiences for the Noir City Festivals are completely mixed in terms of gender. I mean, at times I'm almost convinced there are more women in the audience than there are guys. And it's certainly true, I have found this to certainly be true, the younger the audience is. I've gone out and spoken at at schools. When When I'm on the road doing the Noir City Festivals, I'll frequently go to colleges, and sometimes even high schools. And invariably, it is the young women who are taken by these films and show a real interest where where it doesn't really develop for the guys until a lot later. I mean, this is true of a lot of things with men and women. And I find that there is a very, very hardcore female audience for these films based on exactly what you just described, right? Uh, somehow the new term for this, I don't know where this came from, but now you can't read about any of this without seeing it, is female agency. <laughs> I don't know where agency suddenly developed is like the go-to word for this, right? But, but that's exactly what Stanwyck and Joan Crawford and Rita Hayworth and Gloria Graham and all, you know, it's agency, I guess, is what they say now.
1: It's, that's a far less sexy term, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know they have power. Yes, you know that's what they have. Uh, they have the power to control men, if not themselves. So, um, but you know that's that's a certain type of character in film noir that is eternally popular. But but also when you watch enough of these films and people who come to your series, they'll certainly come away with this is, you know, that's not all that's in these movies in terms of, of the women. Mm-hmm. is is not just the femme fatale. I mean, in these movies, it is clearly stated that the only hope the guy has is the right woman. And for whatever, and the right woman is always shown in these movies, right? I mean, she's a, uh, a self-reliant, upstanding, self-respecting career woman. That always, always, always. And the guy always makes the mistake of choosing the gold digger, the sexy gold digger instead, and it all ends up badly. I mean, it it was... I find these films to be, in some ways, very subversive in that they were telling people at that time, you know, you're better off letting women be independent and and a bit liberated and and self-reliant because they're going to be more... Uh, better citizens right, So the woman in this movie that is always the villainous is the one who I'll just get the man to do it for me and mm-hmm. that's the moral of so many of these stories really very timely moral I think
1: well and there's some interesting twists on it that you're highlighting in this festival too there's a film that I saw recently that I hadn't been familiar with Wicked Woman with Beverly Michaels Whoa. not having a drink with
2: me. Can't. It's against the rules. You've broken the rules before. What happened?
1: He was reaching for something and slipped.
2: She has everything. And every man wants what she's got. You'll hate every vicious bone in her body. But you won't be able to get her out of your mind. Be among the first to see Beverly Michaels in a sensational performance as the girl who was stripped of all decency by uncontrollable desire.
1: She is a fascinating character because she's she's kind of the femme fatale, but she's kind of a victim and she's doesn't necessarily have to get punished for her behavior exactly, and she's very striking, but she's an interesting kind of twist on what people may think of as the conventional femme fatale.
0: I, I totally agree. I totally agree. It's kind of a goofy movie in some respects, <laughs> but what you're referring to is, uh, and I don't want to give any spoilers for spoil. uh, but yes, it plays with the conventions of the femme fatale. And, and I, would, I would suggest that you know, people who think that the femme fatale is uh, this evil character look at some of the classic examples in these movies, like Gilda, right, where I don't think she's a femme fatale at all. I think she's just trying to survive the craziness of these two men who are in love with her. Or um, one of my favorite characters is um, Yvonne DiCarlo in a movie called Crisscross where she basically gives the, the feminist manifesto at the end of the movie when she realizes that Burt Lancaster has screwed everything up, and she says, you know, I can't help it if you don't know how to take care of yourself. I didn't ask you to do this stuff for me.
2: I have to get away. You don't know what you've done bringing him here. I have to pack, I have to hurry. You're going away? You're going to leave me here? How far could I get with you? What kind of a chance would we have? You can't move, you couldn't last a day. Don't you understand you need help, doctors? You could never make it. What do you want me to do? Let him get us both? Would that make you feel happier? Does that make sense to you? No, that'd be more. Why did you have to come here in the first place? Why, why? It was all working out. Everything was fine. Paper said you'd be in the hospital for weeks. All those things you said to me. You're not lying. You meant it. I know you meant it. You love me. Love, love. You have to watch out for yourself. That's the way it is. I'm sorry. What do you want me to do? Throw away all this money? You always have to do what's best for yourself. That's the trouble with you. It always was, from the beginning. You just don't know what kind of a world it is. Well, I'll know better next time. Well, people get hurt. I can't help it. I can't help it if people don't know how to take care of themselves. I'm sorry I can't be like you. I'm
0: not like you. I wasn't born that way. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorite scenes in film noir. And and yet people will still review that film and say, oh, it's about a woman who, who destroys these men. And it's like, the movie I'm watching is the opposite. It's a movie about men who destroy this woman who just was trying to get on with her life.
1: Well, I think a lot of, sometimes people go in with a certain set of expectations and don't see beyond that and to me noir has always been this place where there seems to be so many layers to what's going on and that's why that's another reason why i think they hold up so well now is because you can see just the surface of you know what might have made them popular when they came out and then you can read more into it and you know kind of dig beneath and they just seem to hold up well because we can keep finding new things in them
0: I, I, I totally agree with, with that, yes. And and it's interesting because, you know, I've been doing this for a lot of years now, and it's fascinating that uh, as a researcher and a writer, one of the things that makes the subject so interesting is, exactly as you described, uh, when you learn about the the political climate of the time these movies were made, what was actually going on in Hollywood, the lives of the people making these films – all of this plays a part in the individual films and the, the noir movement in general, right? And so there's endlessly fascinating stuff that you can read into the movies or learn or in the movies. But then here we are decades later, and you can just watch the movies as these fabulous entertainments. And it's it's fascinating because... These movies were born of a very complex difficult uh almost a time of crisis in the country and in the movie business and yet today people watch these as as comfort food. It's like, oh, I love these movies you know i still, oh it's so great to not have to you know I can just escape into these movies and it's like well, the people who made them weren't really escaping. But that's how a lot of people interpret them today. And the truth is, Beth, you can you can have it both ways. I mean, when I introduce the movies, you know, uh, live, you know, I'll sometimes go into the backstory of a film like The Prowler and explain politically how everybody who made this movie is going to be out of this country and blacklisted and their careers are going to be ruined. And... Some people are like, "You got, "Wow, that's fascinating." Other people are like, "Shut up and show the movie." <laughs> and uh, it's, it kind of happens on both levels, just like you're describing.
1: Now, in talking about kind of the things that that went into making these films at the time they were made, do you feel that true noir has to be rooted in a certain time period? Are are the films that are classic noirs from a certain period and are contemporary noir somehow different or in kind of a separate category?
0: Um, You know, that's... um I don't, uh, here, here's my answer to that. I do believe that there was, as I've described, a, a movement, an artistic movement, right? And you can equate this to any kind of art form. You know, there's there's the bebop movement, or there's the cubist movement, or the dadaist movement, you know? And because it's a movement, we clearly identify it as like, well, here's the starting point, and here's probably the end point. But that doesn't mean that it it vanishes into the ether, when the movement ends, I mean, it's it's going, that's the purpose of art, right? It's going to influence people. It's going to affect people. It's going to, uh, you know, you can't imagine that when Robert Town wrote Chinatown, he wasn't thinking of these older films. He was thinking of Raymond Chandler. He was thinking of that whole period. And, and he did his extension of it that that's how i look at it and people do extensions of it you know when i watch david lynch movies i see so much stuff that i i think is like this guy has definitely seen laura right he's definitely seen born to kill uh i mean he he is making direct references you know he makes a direct reference to gilda in mulholland drive um you know, he's influenced by these films. Now, does that make his movies noir, or are they just under the influence of noir in some, in some small way? I mean, uh, I really respect the contemporary filmmakers who, where I can see that they've watched these movies, they've absorbed the movies, and then what they make are comments on or extensions of traditional film noir.
1: So what was it that made you fall in love with noir in the first place? <laughs> Do you remember like, how you got introduced to it?
0: Um, yeah, cutting school. Stay, <laughs> staying home and watching movies on TV instead of going to school. See, kids, it pays off in the end. No, <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I, didn't say that. I, I was just fascinated with the period. It, it was the time period that, that really interested me. Uh, because it was so different from the era in which I grew up. I mean, I was, come on, I came of age in San Francisco during the late 60s, early 70s, you know. Uh, summer of love and hippies and all that stuff. And and yet my my dad, who was a, uh, a public figure in San Francisco, he was a newspaper guy, a sports writer, his career was chronicled. I mean, there was a visual timeline of his career that I could look at and it just fascinated me in part because it was so very different from what was happening at that time right beards long hair beads sandals the whole thing and it's like and i'm looking at all these pictures of guys in suits and overcoats and fedoras walking around on market street and it's like what was this world <laughs> so so that was definitely where i started to pay attention and then when i found these movies I've said a hundred times it was like when I started watching noir when I was a young kid, it was felt like I was watching my dad's home movies, especially the boxing ones. But but that was it. I mean, I'm, there, there there was definitely that connection, and my dad because he was around the boxing game, he guys like that were I, I was familiar with them you know, trainers and fighters and all this kind of stuff, and they were, like, right out of a film noir. So uh, I I always had a feel for
1: it. Did that love for noir lead you to founding the Noir Foundation?
0: Well, the foundation was a direct result of when we did the the first festival of film noir in San Francisco, it was so successful, so unexpectedly successful, that we, we made a ton of money. And the, the first year we did it, I just did it you know, for the venue, and they kept all the money. <laughs> and then when I said, well, this is really an amazing thing, then I, then I had to take it seriously and treat it like a business. And so I created this foundation. We rented the theater outright so that we actually kept the box office. But I never felt like this money was mine. I really felt like, geez, you know, um, what we need to do with this is is use the money to save films that I want to show, that I can't show, you know. And that's exactly what we do, and we've been doing it for it's going on twelve years now that the foundation has existed, and you know we've restored and or preserved like twenty movies. Uh, at least 20 movies in that time, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful closed loop. People come, we, sh- we show the film, the money that we make, we find a film that we haven't been able to show or that's at risk of being lost, we restore it, then we show that one the next year, and then, you know, people come and see that, and, and it perpetuates itself, and it's, it's been a fabulous experience.
1: And you have some films that you're screening this year that are rare gems, films that you can't just find on DVD. Can you highlight the ones that you're showing this year?
0: Well, the the restoration we did is a movie called The Man Who Cheated Himself that we're showing. But we try to find, you know, these these rarities. And, and our theme this year is we want to do uh, genuine A and B double bills because I have found that over the years a lot of people have – they have a mistaken notion of what a B film is. They, they hear that, and it's somehow a pejorative, like, oh, well, that's just a B film, you know. Like, it has something to do with the quality or something, which isn't really true. They, they were shorter movies made by the studios specifically for the purpose of filling out the bottom half of a double bill. And they're almost always genre pictures. They're going to be a Western or a crime movie or some kind of inexpensive adventure yarn or something at the bottom half of the double bill. And so we wanted to put, uh, you know, and, and they're never like more than 75 minutes long. That's a, that's about it for a bee. Uh, but, you know, we're showing stuff like Quiet, Please Murder, which is a, a great fox bee. Uh, from Columbia, there's an amazing film called Address Unknown, which really isn't a true bee. It's 75 minutes long. Uh, again, written by a woman, Catherine Taylor, who wrote under the name Cressman Taylor, because... So many women who wrote for these movies used men's names, like Craig Rice is, a, is actually a woman, Marty Holland is actually a woman, and Cressman Taylor is actually a woman. And um, anyway, Address Unknown is a great movie about um, the rise of the Nazis in, in Europe, told in a very, very creative way. There's a movie called Jealousy that is one of the few Hollywood films by Gustav Machaty, who is famous for uh, making the film Ecstasy with Hedy Lamarr in the early 1930s. A film that we restored called High Tide, that was a genuine B movie that is just fantastic. It's so inventive. I I love it. Anyway, it's uh, you know we really go the extra mile to find and uh, and and show these films that. Either have disappeared and we hunt them down and restore them, or they're they're buried deep in the vaults at the studios. And it's like, thank you, Eddie. Nobody's ever asked for that movie before, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you you mention in the like the subtitle for your festival this year, it says uh, "Film Noir A to B." So that's uh, representing your A and B movies.
0: Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yes.
1: Now, in programming these, how hard is it to make the decision of what to show? I mean, when we were doing it, we had 12 slots to to fill, and it was agonizing because you're torn between wanting to show stuff that people probably have never seen, as well as kind of showing some of the stuff that's so deliciously good that people are familiar with that is so much fun to see again on the big screen.
0: Have you... Um... Well, I mean, welcome to the world of programming, Beth. <laughs> it's so hard. Have, have you, uh, is this the first time you've programmed a series?
1: No, and, I've gone through okay. the agony many times, yes. Okay,
0: so you you know what it's all about. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is that when you've gone, you know, it's 16 years for me in San Francisco, but it will be 20 years in April in Los Angeles where I've shown at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood for 20 years this april. And the trick to the programming is it's all balance. To me it's all about balance. I have found see the A and B show is a perfect way to put a more well-known A picture out there and then pair it with something that is a real rarity and and if it's not like the greatest film ever made, I say to people don't worry it's only 65 <laughs> minutes long, right? You'll live. <laughs> but Not that they aren't all interesting to me, uh, but what I've discovered that's really fascinating is some programmers, I think, they're programming for themselves or they're programming for other programmers. So they obsessively want to find the most esoteric thing and say, nobody's ever shown this before, right? And then 14 people come to the theater, and it's like those 14 people get to feel like they're the smartest people in the world, for the length of the show right all well and good but the re- reality is the audience cycles you know i mean i i kind of consider when i watch the crowd come in i look and i say who's the youngest person in here and like you know are we getting any 15 year olds in here and would you have to realize is <laughs> that ten, 10 years from then they're going to be 25 years old right i mean I've been doing this for 20 years now. So I literally have had people come to my screenings when they were 13, right? And now they're 33. They're 33 years old. There's a lot of movie going (laughs) in there. And I have found that it's always worth showing Mildred Pierce again. Mm -hmm. It's okay to show Double Indemnity again because there's somebody who's seeing it for the first time. Or maybe they've seen it, but they've never seen it on a movie screen before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you you can't just focus on the rarities and be that uh, that super discriminating programmer who says I found a film that nobody's seen before. You. So I like to, you know, put uh, you know the something like the Blue Dahlia or Double Indemnity or Mildred Pierce on on a bill with a movie that nobody's seen.
1: Yeah. Well, in looking at your schedule, the double bills are great because it, it it seems like it has. Something more familiar that can entice someone in who maybe is not a hardcore noir fan and will get them to stay for the second one, which is possibly that rare gem that they'll never
0: see anywhere (laughs) else. Believe me, Beth, I didn't think up this strategy. (laughs) (laughs) This is the way the movie business worked forever. (laughs) Oh, claim the credit.
1: Um. You kick off the series, your festival this year, uh, with I Wake Up Screaming. And Victor Mature stars in this. His daughter lives here in San Diego, and she's going to be coming when we screen it here in San Diego. And we were starting our series with Maltese Falcon, which a lot of people look to as kind of kicking off the. The Noir Cycle, and she goes like, no, 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 maybe you should consider my dad's film as the first one, and she sent me an article about it. So, you're kicking off your series with that. Are you going to be addressing that kind of idea in any well, way? Well, Victoria's
0: going to be at my screening. Yes, so she's getting around. She's working pretty good on her dad's behalf. Yes. That's not bad. Good good going, Victoria. <laughs> I mean, she did not consult with me before before I, mm-hmm. uh, I did this, but... Um, you know, she she saw it and said, "Wow, this is great." You know, uh, can I come? <laughs> so yeah, she will be at the screening in San Francisco as well.
1: And are you kind of addressing? She's delightful. Yes, she is. And are you addressing in any way, like whether or not the the dispute or the debate between "I Wake Up Screaming" and "Maltese Falcon"?
0: There's, there there is no dispute. No I mean dispute. it's The the reality is. You know, a a movement has to gain traction, right? So Mm -hmm. more than one film has to be made, right? I mean, I Wake Up Screaming looks much more like a film noir than The Maltese Falcon. Mm -hmm. But The Maltese Falcon was the huge success. And and Humphrey Bogart, his attitude in that film is what set the tone for the entire film noir movement. I mean, it's that, that character of Sam Spade is what the American public responded to, right? I won't play the sap for you and all that. that. That's legendary. There's really nothing about I Wake Up Screaming that's legendary. <clears throat> but it certainly uh, had the look and it had the feel of, of noir, uh, you know, the flashback story, the whole thing. It was a – I Wake Up Screaming was a huge uh, – the novel was a huge influence on Vera Caspari, another woman – who wrote Laura. The novel Laura was inspired by Steve Fisher's novel, I Wake Up Screaming. So this is how a movement builds. You get these artists all kind of influencing and inspiring each other, and then it happens. And I'm much more interested in how that works than I'm interested in saying well, this is the first one, obviously, and anybody who doesn't think so is stupid. You know, it's like, who cares? Who cares what the first one is? You know, I can go, let's go back to the cave paintings and find the first example of of noir on on the cave.
1: And you're ending the festival with a film I love, which is Big Heat. And there's so much good stuff in this film. You've got Gloria Graham, you've got a young Lee Marvin, What is it about this film that you particularly enjoy? (laughs)
0: Uh, I enjoy the story. Uh, William P. McGivern was the the guy who wrote this. He was a uh, crime reporter turned novelist, and he wrote a really tight, brilliantly structured revenge drama that is like I've always referred to it as the Dirty Harry of the Eisenhower era. And that's really... What it is, and I think Glenn Ford is is perfect in this film, and and the um, the combination of his really tough, stoic guy on a mission that character contrasted with Gloria Graham's sort of dopey, funny but just as wounded character. It's it's great, and and she's fantastic, and I it's obviously one of Fritz Lang's best films that he made in America. This is the first time I've shown it in San Francisco at a noir festival. So it finally was the perfect time.
1: And you're also showing a Hitchcock film, The Shadow of the Doubt. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, kind of pigeonhole Hitchcock as master of suspense and and think of him in a very particular way. But he really has done some quality noir
0: films. Well, I certainly think so. And and I know there are people who say, well, it can't it you know Hitchcock's his own thing. It, mm-hmm. You can't classify him as film noir. But I don't know Shadow of a Doubt, Strangers on a Train, I Confess, The Wrong Man. The, these all strike me as being stories that are are completely uh, noir. And uh, of course, Strangers on a Train, written by Patricia Highsmith, mm. woman. Thank you very much. <laughs> And, of course, my favorite film of all time, In a Lonely Place, based on a novel written by Dorothy Hughes, a woman. Thank you very much. So, um, you know, I I just, with the Hitchcock thing, a lot of his scripts, of course, worked on by his wife, Alma Revel. Mm -hmm. There you go. Um, I I have no qualms saying that a lot of the darker, uh, even Vertigo, I will put on the list as a a film that to me seems to be very much a, a noir as opposed to things like uh North by Northwest and
2: right.
0: you know the, the kind of adventurous fun Hitchcock movies. I'll even I'll even go so far as to argue that uh in my book Dark City, I ended it with psycho mm-hmm. saying that psycho to me symbolically represented the end of the noir Era because it start the movie starts out as a film noir and it ends up as a horror movie, mm-hmm. and it's like at a certain point the psychology trips over into the psychopathology thing that was beyond anything that noir was ever about, and then it becomes horror. But the start of that film with Marion Crane deciding is she going to rob the thing and escape and all, I mean that's a classic noir set up and it goes along feeling just like a film noir until she takes that shower and then it's then it becomes something else and of course you know as a writer you're always looking for like the moment the pivotal moment and it's like there it is when cinema changed you know it changed in that shower and uh who knows maybe
1: so your festival, Noir City, is going to be running January 26th to February 4th at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. So if people can't get to the festival, which is a little bit of a haul sometimes, but they can enjoy noir with you every Sunday on TCM. So tell us about that.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, it's fantastic. I mean, uh, I've had a long, um, I guess I can say that now, I've had a long lovely relationship with Turner Classic Movies uh going back to the <laughs> early days of this century and uh and I was just thrilled when they finally said well how would you just like to do your own show and um it's been greater than I ever expected uh you know they built me my own set it's absolutely it's absolutely fantastic uh and I, I, I'm really enjoying doing this. I mean, uh, it, it, you work very, very hard to fill a movie theater and get like a thousand people in there to watch a film, and then you uh, you do this stuff for TCM, and you realize you're reaching like incredible uh, amounts of people. And I, of course, am watching it on my couch at home <laughs> and realizing, wow, a lot of people are looking at this right now. Uh, but it 's great, and you know it's it 's fun to be part of what t c m is doing because uh as it has turned out uh the network is sort of the the you know the the gatekeeper of america 's movie legacy right i mean that 's what t c m is now and so um it's while it 's great fun, I also take it quite seriously because uh this this is i hope how a lot of younger people are going to uh, experience classic cinema uh, these days. You know, uh, there there just aren't the number of rep cinemas that existed when I was growing up. I mean, I I had to go searching on, on, you know, TV (laughs) (laughs) pre-cable to find these movies when I was a kid, and now... All I have to do is just watch TCM, and it's like this is fantastic, you know. So I'm I'm very thrilled that they asked me to do this, and I'm having a I'm having a ball, and uh, it seems that people are enjoying it very much.
1: Well, it it always gives me great pleasure to wake up Sunday morning and see Noir Alley trending on Twitter,
0: and <laughs> <laughs> isn't that something? <laughs> yes. Well, it's old movies trending on Twitter, and it's so... I love that.
1: And it's so appropriate that it's on a Sunday because it feels like church, you know? You can just go in and worship.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad you say that because, uh, you know, uh, some people wonder, like, why Sunday morning? Why Sunday morning? And I, I, it makes sense to me. You know, um, I, I think that the audience that I really would love to reach are people who are more likely to watch on a Sunday morning, to be quite honest. Uh, so it always made sense to me.
1: Well, what better time? You can be a little hungover from Saturday night. You can be maybe contemplating sins and moral transgressions and perfect for a Sunday morning.
0: There you go. I, some of these movies are just like your, your Sunday sermon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I want to thank you very much for taking time to talk to me. And um, hopefully we're going to get you down here for one of our films to introduce That them. will
0: happen. I am certain that will happen.
1: I, I, think, I think it might be this gun for hire So in March, so hopefully we can, we'll can be seeing you down here and you can chat with our lovely fans. at uh, Our group is called Film Geeks San Diego, and we do <laughs> year-long programming at this little micro-cinema, so we're, we're a little nerdy about our films.
0: <laughs> That's good. Sounds great. I look forward to meeting you and uh, seeing you then.
1: All right, well, thanks very much. And also, uh, let people know where they can... You're very accessible on social media, so where can people find you?
0: Uh, uh, where do they find At Noir Alley, uh, is, uh, uh, or Eddie Muller. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. When you say, how do they find it? It's like, I don't know. Do you ty- I guess you type in my name. <laughs> I think that's really how you do it, uh, either on Facebook or Twitter, or you can do that at Noir Alley, or you can do it at the Film Noir Foundation. Uh the the you know, I no aliases with me. You know, I don't I don't hide on social media. I'm not anonymous on social media. So if you want to find me, it's really, really easy.
1: And where can people find information about the film festival if they wanna get a ticket uh, or
0: city dot com. All right. It's as simple as that.
1: Well, Thank you again. It's been wonderful talking about noir, which is a genre that, or a genre or style. There's that argument
0: too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good. You caught yourself there, Beth. Yes, that <laughs> opens up a whole other can. of I know of worms. that's a whole
1: other can of worms. We can talk about that another time. Okay, uh, but it's something that I adore, and I'm so glad that I had a chance to speak with you.
0: It was good. it was entirely my pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Eddie Muller. You can find him every Sunday morning on TCM's Noir Alley. And his film festival, Noir City, will kick off January 26th in San Francisco. And I'm excited to announce that the noir series that I've been working on with Film Geeks SD will kick off on January 28th at the Digital Gym Cinema. For that series, there will be a noir one Sunday a month, and those will be kind of classic noir. And then every other month, we'll be showcasing a contemporary noir on a Monday night. So if you want more information, go to the Film Geeks SD page on Facebook. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.